NWP Radio. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. Welcome, listeners. This is NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. Today is April 29, 2022, and today we're talking with Peter Docker, author of Leading from the Jump Seat, How to Create Extraordinary Opportunities by Handing Over Control. I'm your host, Tanya Baker, at the National Writing Project in Berkeley, California. Uh, Peter, we are so pleased to have you join us for this, I think, really important and interesting conversation. Before we begin, could you um, introduce yourself to listeners? You might start with a traditional introduction. You are not our regular guest, I have to say, on the show. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are, what you do, and what brings you out to talk with us today? Of course, Tanya. First of all, thank you so much for having me on your show. I'm delighted to be here. Um, good heavens, my career, I, I've had such a privilege uh, traveling the world and having lots of different careers. Actually, I started my life in the Royal Air Force. Well, not started my life, but my work <laughs> in the Royal Air Force. Uh, and I, I served for 25 years as a pilot, as a senior officer. Uh, lots of challenges during that period. Uh, leading people during combat uh, was one of my biggest challenges. Uh, I taught at the uh, Defence College here in the UK, uh, senior officers here at the, uh, the college, including those from the States as well, from all three services in the States, which was a great privilege. Uh, I've, well, <laughs> negotiated with the Russians, good heavens, when the Berlin Wall came down. <laughs> Maybe we need a bit more of that now, who knows, but I'm well out of that these days. <laughs> Uh, worked with your um, Secretary of State in the State Department on export licensing. I've run $20 billion programs. It, all this was part of being in the Royal Air Force. But after 25 years, I thought there's more I can do. So I left uh, after those 25 years and I went into uh, industry and I worked with a great consultancy that had nothing to do with flying or the military, <laughs> but everything to do with with people mm -hmm. and we worked in high risk industries where people often got killed or injured in oil and gas mining construction mm -hmm. and we helped to uh, bring a culture and a way of leading that ensured that everyone went home safe at the end of each day and also the performance actually went through the roof of the, the organizations too but after about three years i thought there's more i could do and so I moved on again. And um, that was the start of a period of about eight or nine years where I worked alongside a fellow called Simon Sinek, who many people have oh, heard yeah. of, wrote the book Start With Why and Lead Seat Last. And I uh, started to help take his message around the world. And that was a great privilege. So I, I worked as a speaker and as a facilitator. And I also wrote the book Find Your Why with Simon and my dear friend David Mead, uh, which is sold in 26 languages, I think, uh, to date. So that was that was a great privilege. But then after about eight years, I don't know what there's more I could do. <laughs> Bit of a recurring theme here, isn't it, Tanya? So um, I, I stepped away from Simon and uh, I've spent the last couple of years bringing together all the things I've learned because that's been such a great privilege. I've visited 93 countries. I've worked with industry leaders, leadership teams from every industry you can imagine, including teaching actually uh, over in California. Um, and I, I brought it all together um, 
in a book that you've mentioned, Lead from the Jump Seat, how to create extraordinary opportunities by handing over control. And the reason I wanted to do that was because I've had such a privileged experience or experiences meeting so many different people from around the world, learning so much. I wanted to bring it together and put it into a book so hopefully others can can learn and benefit from it too. So that's what brings me to your show today. First of all, clearly you must have a time turner because I didn't keep, I didn't do the math, but that seemed like too many years that you have been working. So I don't see how that's possible. Uh, Secondly, I'm very excited to jump in this book and listeners who hear us talk a lot about books that are about how to teach writing or something might be wondering, what is this book about on the writing project? But as I told you in our pre-interview, I'm very excited about the possibility of this book for helping teachers think about their practice. We usually follow an introduction of um, a person's qualifications or work life with a personal question and often they're a little silly um but this time because um you're gonna feel a little bit outside of our organization we'll bring you in by asking you um tell us something about a great teacher you once had who's a teacher who made a difference to you Hmm. this this is a great question because I've learned from so many people during my Mm -hmm. travels and during my different careers in life. You know, uh, I I think there's a great opportunity to see everyone we meet as a teacher. Right. Um, Because I think the day that we stop learning, well, you might as well give up. So uh, that's one thing that comes to mind. But as a formal teacher, I I can't help but remember uh, at high school, I had a teacher called Mr. Appleby. And uh, as the, even his name might suggest, he was a wonderful character. <laughs> and he taught English literature. Ah. And what I remember about Mr. Appleby, uh, he, he had quiet confidence, humble confidence, as I, I would mm-hmm. call it. You know, he knew his subject well. But what he did was create possibility. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, that's what uh, teachers, when at their best, that's what teachers do they create possibility they hold the space and lift others up and you know it really resonates with me because i get a great kick out of life um (laughs) opening up possibility for others because i truly believe that everyone is extraordinary everyone it's just some haven't discovered it yet and when we can help people tap into what that extraordinary looks like for them, so they can reach their potential, they can bring that to life for the world, then I think that's the extraordinary opportunity and privilege. So whether we're formal teachers like my wonderful Mr. Appleby and like many of the listeners here today, <laughs> or whether we choose to approach life as the opportunity to learn and to teach others, then uh, I think it's just a, a great opportunity to lift others up. There's so many things in that, but I would say welcome to the writing project. We're definitely happy to have you here. Um, I thought we could start by talking about um, sort of the structure and the making of the book. We are a network of writing teachers, many of whom write about their practice. So they're always interested in how did a book get made or how's a book work. So we'll spend a little couple minutes about that before we dive into leadership, if that's okay with you. Of course. 
great. Um, so the book's divided into three sections, commitment, yeah. humble confidence, and belonging, and each section has multiple chapters. Why are these the three organizing sections? How do these big ideas connect or intersect for you? This, uh, I think, uh, another wonderful question, Tanya, because when I sat down to write this, um, I, I had some great colleagues, uh, one of whom is staying with me at the moment, uh, Ashley from over in the States, who I've known for many years and have worked with before. And their role was, help, was to help me formulate how is I going to bring all the ideas and stories, because the book is, as you know, is full of stories. Right. I think stories, a story is a way that we learn. Mm -hmm. It's how human beings tend to remember things. So um, I, I've brought many stories into the book, but you know I didn't want it to be a collection just of stories. I wanted it to have some structure, and it was during a, a, a run, which is my meditation, a run mm -hmm. through the wonderful countryside here in England, that it, it, it actually came to me. It, it was a eureka moment of what are the three buckets that are really important into which I can push all of the ideas. And you've mentioned that the first is commitment, the second is humble confidence, and the third is belonging. And the, the commitment piece is all around um, actually a focus on leading ourselves. Hmm. And I think this applies to everyone. The, the better we can lead ourselves, the better we can lead others. And uh, I think this applies equally to teachers as it does to, well, <laughs> A teaching role I have is as a parent. You know, yes. I think being a parent is one of the most challenging leadership um, uh, opportunities that we have. And I think what's helped me be a parent and our two great kids, you know, they're grown up now in the late 20s and just turning 30, leading their own lives. But what really helped there was being clear on what we stood for as parents, mm -hmm. my wife and I, what's deeply important to us. What are those non-negotiables, those unshakable things, um, which actually go deeper than values? Because I think mm -hmm. values aren't as fixed as we might like to think they are. Mm -hmm. um, but what we stand for as human beings, uh, that goes deeper. And so the, the commitment section of the book is all about really discovering what's deeply important to us. Because when we can latch onto that, it gives us a, a fantastic reservoir of energy to continue forward, even in the face of enormous challenges. And, you know, the teaching profession always has challenges, but over the last couple of years mm -hmm. with the disruption that has occurred, you know, even bigger challenges like we could never have imagined. Right. And yet something keeps us going. Mm. And when we can, dig deep and find out what that commitment is and put it into words. Um, it helps us not only to articulate it, but to act on it. And that's why I started with commitment because it, it, it's all about having an inward look, uh, look at the person in the mirror. Right. Because when we can better understand ourselves and what we stand for, what we believe in, then it helps us to guide others, even during times of uncertainty. Um, mm. So that was commitment, humble confidence, is the second section and that is all about um it's what i call the antidote to ego mm -hmm. you know as i i explained the, the the book uh 
everything that drives us that's deeply important to us is driven by one of two things it's by fear or by love <laughs> and how fear often shows up you know fear shows up when our life is on the line and, and fear can help us jump out the way of an oncoming car you know that's good but fear can often crop up when we sense our livelihood our status or our reputation is on the line and the way fear shows up then is not always so helpful and often it can be in the form of ego and uh, we always have a choice and that choice is the title of the second section and that is humble confidence and humble confidence is about having the confidence of our strengths um, where we know we're, we're strong being resolute on where we're heading but having the humility to be able to listen to people on our team uh, and to take in their their thoughts their ideas mm -hmm. so that's why the second section was focused on humble confidence because if we want to get the most from the people that we're working with um, we need to lead with humble confidence not with ego mm -hmm. and then the final section of belonging that final bucket there that that was a real eureka moment for me coming up with that that category or that bucket because it, it captures what i think is deeply important to all of us and that is as human beings we like to belong we like to sense that we belong whether it's to our tribe our clique our school our team whatever we seek belonging the vast mm -hmm. majority of us do anyway and when we feel that we belong we feel the sense of security that comes with it and when we feel secure we're more likely to reach higher and you know putting that in a classroom context as well when we create that sense of belonging in the classroom um, our, our students will want to take risks in a good right. way you know right. they want to put the hand up and know that even if they've got the answer wrong that's okay right um they, they they've taken that risk mm -hmm. and when people feel they belong they take responsibility <laughs> for what they're doing too and that's when the magic can really start to happen in any team or organization so that was why the the last section was all around belonging uh, I'm so moved by so many of these ideas and their potential power in a classroom. Um, we'll dive into them in a little minute, but I'll just ask you two more questions about the book. One is, um, so the, there you have these three buckets and within those buckets you have some chapters and each chapter ends with a consider this, um, which is um, teachers will be recognize these as the questions at the end of the chapter that help you yeah. connect what you've read to your own work or own life. Um, I love the consider this sections and that the consider this are divided into four options depending on given whatever problem of practice you're thinking about or whatever thing in your life you're thinking about where you are. So they could be learning to fly or flying or teaching others to fly or leading from the jump seat. Um, so what was my question about that? Um, can you talk about those four levels of consider this or four levels of development along a track to leadership? Of course. So first of all, consider this. I, I chose those words carefully. You know, words matter, don't right. they? And for me, reading a, a book, if someone at the end of it or end of a chapter says, um, ideas for action or get into action on these things, that, that's quite <laughs> affronting, isn't it? But consider this. <laughs> It's an invitation. They are, yeah. 
And when I was writing this book, I thought, you know what, the ideas in here, they apply whether you're the CEO of a company or whether you're a parent trying to bring up young kids for the first <laughs> time, um, or you're just trying to figure things out for yourself in your own life, you know? So there are quite a few stories in the book that draw on my flying background as a, a pilot, because flying a large um, passenger jet I did, uh, as I did, uh, the, the flight deck of an aeroplane for me is, is a, a microcosm of, of leadership. And you can see some of the greatest leadership and <laughs> very occasionally some very poor leadership, but mostly it, it's, it's mm -hmm. a great example of really good leadership. Mm -hmm. And so the consider this section mirrors um, that, that metaphor really, it, it carries it forward. So learning to fly is the first stage and the way I characterize that is um, perhaps someone who is leaving high school, maybe going to college or university or taking up an apprenticeship, at that stage in your life, you're just trying to figure out what's deeply important to you. Right. And that actually links to that commitment mm -hmm. section in the book too, you know? Uh, when you know what is deeply important to you, what really matters, I'm not talking about the latest iPhone or, or <laughs> MacBook or whatever, no. What's deeply important to you? For many, mm -hmm. it, it's family, mm -hmm. you know? And we will move heaven and earth to support our family, but there are other things as well. Mm -hmm. um, and when we can identify those, that adds to our reservoir of, of energy to overcome difficult times. So learning to fly is the stage when we're just trying to figure things out. And typically that will be when you're starting to make some big choices, mm -hmm. perhaps going to college, university, where you're choosing to go in that direction, study that subject rather than another subject. And sometimes there'll be people say, oh, you don't want to go in that direction. You don't want to study that. All you want to do is that, but no, you know, that you want to study that particular subject. So there we go, that's a crossroads in life. Mm -hmm. And we draw on that more deeply in the book, but learning to fly is at that stage. But then say that you graduate, graduate in my example, you graduate from college, uh, let's say you're a computer programmer and you then get hired by a company to be a, a coder, to be a programmer, and you start to get in flow. Well, that would be flying. You know, mm -hmm. you know what you're doing, you can handle everything and it feels good, that's mm. fine. But then say you've been doing that for a few years and you get promoted because you've done well. And uh, soon you, you're no longer doing the programming, you're taking care of the people who are doing that programming. Right. And this is where your role starts to change. This is where you focus more on teaching others to fly. Right. You're helping them to fly. And then perhaps later on in your career, um, you become very senior, ultimately you take a step back. And this is when you begin begin to, to lead from the jump seat, as I call it. And leading from the jump seat, it, it recognizes the fact that no matter who we are, what role we have, at some stage, we will all take a step back. We will all hand over control. It is inevitable. You know? <laughs> Whether we're the CEO of a company, you know, we retire, if we are um, a teacher teaching a class, uh, that class will move on. You hand over control effectively to them for their own development. Or if we're a parent, our kids will eventually grow up, leave home and start to lead their own lives. And this is when we're leading from the jump seat because no longer do we have our hands on the controls, but we still have people's backs. They know that we're there to support them. They can rely on us and call on us if, if needed. Mm -hmm. um, and so those are the four, four 
areas of development, if you like, <laughs> learning to fly, flying, teaching others to fly and lean from the jump seat. But here's the kicker right at the end. <laughs> we can be at different stages yes. at different times in our life, you know? So one guy I mentioned in the book was a wonderful chap, a Lieutenant General Sir James Dutton, KCB, CB. He's been knighted twice by the Queen, which anyone who doesn't know what that means, don't worry about it, but it's quite important. You know? <laughs> uh, and he was one of the most senior military officers that I had the privilege of ever working with. And I met up with him after about 20 years, just a few months ago. And to my delight, he hasn't changed. He's one of those <laughs> wonderful leaders. Um, but here's the thing, he has now just retired. And for many years, he was leaning from the jump seat. But now he's back to learning to fly again. Mm -hmm. And in this context, it's about learning to do what, what he's going to do now that he's retired. Right. How is he going to approach life? And so this is the dynamic. And I think when we recognize that we can be at different stages in different areas of our life, first of all, it keeps us humble. Right. And also it means that we can learn we can take what we've learned from one area of our life and apply it mm -hmm. in that new area too. So those are the four, four sections or not sections, the four stages. Uh, excellent. Uh, I'm just going to say, I was going to ask you a question about how you put the book together. I'm going to skip it, but I am going to say for the audience uh, that Peter's not kidding. The examples and stories from this book are from every aspect of his life and you'll find ones that resonate with you um, regardless of what your background or your interests are so let's jump into some of the book um, I told you that our audience is mostly teachers and I was really struck by how your big idea about teaching that your job is to lift up others is so relevant for any teacher teaching at any grade um, and that I was thinking about how this teaching and learning, uh, this idea about teaching and learning might really change the dynamics and focus of classrooms. Mm. Um, so if it's okay, I thought I would just touch on some of the big ideas that really moved me and we might just have a conversation about them. Cool. For instance, um, and I have a story to tell you about this after, but I'll let you start. Um, can you talk about the difference as you see it between a stand and a position? Yeah, I mentioned earlier language matters, and um, I introduced quite a few distinctions in language in the book because when we have, when we can distinguish words, I give them meaning, deeper meaning, it allows us to have different conversations and therefore get different results. And stand versus a position is one such example. So, first of all, let's take a position. A position is against something. Right. Okay, or someone. And it's very easy picking up a newspaper or watching the TV mm -hmm. these days to very quickly get triggered and find ourselves taking a position against someone right. or something. Yeah. It's, it's perfectly natural. But here's the thing, a position can only exist when there's a counter position. Without that counter position, your position just dissolves. A stand, on the other hand, is very different. A stand is for something. And the thing with a stand is that it doesn't rely on anyone or anything else to exist. It's what you believe. It's what you stand for. It's like planting a flag on your island, okay? <laughs> and that flag represents what you stand for. And the ships that are coming past, they can see your flag and what you stand for. And if they believe that too, that's great. They can come and join you on your island. There's plenty of room. But here's the really important thing. If they don't stand for that they can sail on by 
and that is okay. Mm-hmm. It really is. We don't hold it against them. Yeah. So I th- there's a great example of this. That's <laughs> it happened just today. Actually, <laughs> we live in the countryside, very narrow country lanes, and there's one leading out of our village where there's only enough room for one car at a time. And sometimes you get two cars, one travelling in each direction. And they meet bumper to bumper, as we say, or fender to fender, and they stop. Right. And there isn't enough room. And sometimes you can see both drivers immediately taking up a position against <laughs> the other driver. Yeah. And what that looks like is you are traveling too fast. You need a backup to the car. Or my journey is more important than yours. Or my car is more expensive than yours. Whatever. And their positions become more and more entrenched, and nobody moves anywhere. But here's the thing, occasionally you'll get two cars, they meet in that position or they meet bumper to bumper, but one of them has got a stand and that stand is for being courteous on the road. And immediately they reverse up to a passing place to let the other driver by. And two things happen in that moment. First of all, the position of the other driver dissolves because there's no counter position. Right. There's nothing. But importantly, the person who reversed up to the uh, passing place, their stand becomes re-energized. It becomes firmer Mm -hmm. because they've just reinforced it. So this applies in life generally, Mm -hmm. you know, and a really interesting exercise that you can apply right now, anyone who's listening, think of something that really, really triggers you, (laughs) that really makes you, And immediately your reaction is to take up a position. And perhaps it's something that's happened at school or work or whatever. But you will be able to think of something. Here's the opportunity. Stand in position that two sides of the same coin. Turn that coin over and look deeper to find your underlying commitment. What is it that is a stand that you have a stand for rather than a position against. So, you know, something I hear at work or in a work environment quite often, people say, I'll never, no one tells me anything, right? You didn't tell me about that, you know, and that will take up a position, yeah? So if you dig deeper, you find that their stand, their commitment is for clear and transparent communication. Right. So as everyone can get on and do their job and contribute in the way they would wish, yeah? So that's the opportunity when we find ourselves being triggered and the words coming out of our mouth, the thoughts going through our mind are in the language of a position. Think instead to turn that coin over and find the underlying stand, the underlying commitment, because then you can work with that positive energy that's not dependent on anyone or anything else to make progress and move forward. So I'll say to listeners, first of all, this book, if you have children, this book is worth buying to read Peter's story about taking a stand with his son. That's the first thing I'll say. The second thing I'll say, Peter, is um, I, my husband and I are raising three daughters who are in their 20s. And we worry a lot about, we didn't actually have language, I don't think, until I read this book about um, the, the sort of... M- way that social media and the current world really pushes young people to think they should have a position on everything and um and but we haven't had language the right language to talk about that 
And last night at dinner, my husband came to dinner and said, have, have you seen this controversy about this advertisement? I'd like to talk to you about it because people are all up in arms about an ad that, I don't know if you've seen any of this, but it's uh, taking place in, in um, your country, it seems. Um, <laughs> there's an ad that features a young woman running at two o'clock in the morning with headphones in. And people are very, some women are very angry about the ad saying that's unrealistic and it can be triggering for women because they can't, that's not safe, they can't do that. And someone was recently killed. There are these deaths of women out late at night. And I, and I said, wait a minute, let me tell you about this book I've been reading. <laughs> Let's talk about stands and positions because in that example, I said, oh, it's so clear to me, like actually the the stand is we want women to be able you know in both the ad and the people want women to be safe in the Absolutely. world and feel like they can be brave and be out in the world like like yeah. at any time doing what they want to do and if and if instead of like attacking the company you might say I see that we share this stand that this is how the world Absolutely. should be for women how can we work together to make that happen it was such a clear example and then that's we talked about stands and positions all of dinner last night peter so i just want you to know oh wonderful well i'm, I'm you're in my kitchen example. <laughs> <laughs> well i hope i didn't spoil dinner but no really, it was a very invigorating and power i think that's the other thing it was um empowering we both um thought of all kinds of places where we might be taking positions and we could really uh, speak about them differently. We thought about what it would mean um, to help our daughters think in this way and how powerful that might be. It was, it was a. And did you notice, um, Tanya, did you notice the shift in energy? Yes. When you went from the position side to the, the stand? It, it's a, a really powerful shift in energy because a stand is, uh, sorry, a position is generally against something and trying to stop something. But a stand is for something, about creating something and moving forward, you know? And the energy that's associated with them are very, very different. Absolutely. So, yeah, it's, yeah. It's quite profound. It, it, there's, it, there's a similar, I don't mention this in the book, but it's relevant now. You know, the, there's a similar um, uh, effect with complaints, you know? And so in the right. workplace, often uh, people will complain about something. And if, if we're in a management or a leisure position, um, using that word in a different sense, but a leisure role, there is a great temptation to sweep that complaint under the carpet, yeah, as we would say, or ignore right. it or try and move on, yeah. But actually, that's a missed opportunity. The opportunity is to engage with that person, understand what's the underlying commitment behind that complaint. Every complaint has got an underlying commitment. And rather than sweeping under the carpet, we can bring that out, shape it into the form of a stand, help the person articulate it that way, and use that energy to make progress rather than trying to ignore it. And uh, yeah, it, it, that shift in energy is, is quite dramatic. I, I could feel it even in that example removed from us, but it was, yes, it was, it's, that is definitely an idea that will stay with me from this book. Um, let's see, we should pick another question. There's so much to talk about in this book. Let's, um, uh, 
Let's talk about this idea of standing on the mountain when you are facing a difficult task. Yeah, standing on top of the mountain. Um, this I, I love to run and I particularly love running up hills or mountains. And so th this comes from from that, you know, it, it's I, I say when when you want to run up a mountain, start at the top, not at the bottom. That doesn't mean get the helicopter to the summit. No, <laughs> this means that before I run up a mountain, I can think of one now not too far away from here in, in Wales uh, It's called uh, Snowdon. And it's not particularly high, it's about three and a half thousand feet. Um, but I, I can visualize right now standing on top of that mountain. You know, I've, I've run up it several times. And if I close my eyes, I can visualize what I can see from that summit. I can sense the crisp cold air on my skin. I can breathe the, uh, the wonderful freshness of the, the oxygen you get up there. And when you connect to that viscerally, emotionally, I then, in my mind's eye, I can look down at the, the difficult path I've come up and say, yeah, I overcame that. And it's that image, it's that visceral connection that has me get up that mountain. Mm -hmm. And it's a very, very different perspective on life compared to the other option, which is standing at the bottom of that mountain, looking up at the summit, thinking, that looks tough, but I'm going to give it my best shot. You know? <laughs> mm -hmm. And then you find the rocky and difficult paths and you, you often will turn back. I always start at the top of the mountain and it's that which pulls me up there that visceral connection and i can honestly say i've never ever failed to get to the top of a mountain uh, literal or metaphorical <laughs> <laughs> so that's what i mean um and you know it, it's not about ignoring the reality of the journey you've got to take no it's the perspective you have on that journey uh, what goes in tandem with that i, I talk about um, establishing your base camp so taking the, the climbing metaphor a, a bit further, you know, it's if you're going to climb that mountain, yes, you've, you've got to have visualized what it looks like, what it feels like mm -hmm. at the top of that mountain, because it's that emotion that's going to pull you up there. But equally, you've got to check what you've got before you set off, you know, which <laughs> is facing the reality of the situation, you know, right. if, um, like the base camp of Mount Everest, if you're going to summit Mount Everest, you will check before you go, what equipment have I got? What weather is out there? You know, so it's not about ignoring reality, no. Right. It's about the energy that will get you up to that summit, even when you face huge difficulty. So that's what I say, when you want to run up a mountain, start at the top. When you want to complete a project or a challenge, start with visualizing what it feels like, what it looks like. I run an exercise doing this actually, and I have people draw a timeline but I have them draw the timeline rather than from left to right, mm. which would be the natural way. I have them drawing it from right to left because even that motion tricks the brain into thinking differently. Then I have them stand at the right-hand end, which is the, the outcome they, they right. want to achieve. And I have them talk about what it looks like right now, standing mm -hmm. there in the present, what it looks like, and then talk about what it was like getting there but using the past tense 
Yes, I love and this exercise. That they have overcome mm-hmm. to get there. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not new. This is declared future. It's known as by another name, or I, I've called it before, right to left thinking. You know, mm-hmm. um, but it's the the process which is important, and it, it tricks the brain. It, Usain Bolt, the 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 fantastic sprinter. If you've ever seen him when he was competing at the uh, before the hundred meters final of the Olympics, uh, he would be ambling around at that start line, talking to the officials, completely relaxed, where everybody else, all the other competitors, you know, were just focused and looked quite tense. And someone asked him, you know, how can you be so relaxed? He said, well, I've already won. <laughs> and this wasn't arrogance. He right. visualized, visualized crossing the line first, yeah? Absolutely visualized in the same way as I talk about standing on top of a mountain. He'd visualized what it felt like, what it looked like, what it's every sense he could employ. Mm-hmm. And all he had to do then was run the race, you know? And that's why he was, was, was relaxed. So it's the same principle. That's excellent. Um, let's see, I think I'm gonna ask you one or two more questions about the big ideas of the book. One is um, that I think um, I was really thinking about, um, that I think is particularly hard for teachers to hold on to. I might be wrong in this thinking, but you talk about the power of not knowing Mm. and um i'd love for you to explain that idea like what do you see as the power of not knowing and then i'll tell you why i think it's a little bit hard for teachers to remember to hold on to yeah this (laughs) when we're at school as a student we get rewarded don't we when we put our hand up Mm. and we know the right answer Mm mm-hmm and that reward system is good in, in many ways and often we will go on to focus on the subjects where we've got the most right answers you know in other words we're good and perhaps we then go and specialize we go to college university get a degree in that 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 field we then get hired to to work in that field and then if we're really really good we get promoted because we're the one who knows the answer but that's very limiting (laughs) because if we're leading a team where we're leading because we're the one who knows the answer our progress the team's progress is limited by our own knowledge we become the constriction in the pipe so what i uh, teach people who are leading teams is how to get comfortable leading when they don't know the answer and that is difficult because, as I've described, our whole culture is one where we've been rewarded for knowing the answer. Mm-hmm. So, but if we want to get beyond that limitation, where we can take our team into the unknown, into uncertainty, and lead confidently in those situations, we need to become comfortable leading when we don't know the answer. And that is very confronting for many of us. It's uncomfortable because we've got to be the one who knows the answer. Um, But when we can master being comfortable not knowing the answer, all of a sudden we're no longer a constriction in the pipe. So how do we do that? Well, the focus, the the, the handrail that we have comes back to our stands, what we believe in, because that provides the the, the guide for when we're in unknown, uncharted territory where there isn't a, a roadmap to follow our stands give us the, the the guide our stands being those non-negotiables those things that are deeply important to us yeah 
So that's the first thing. But also it's about uh, having a focus on lifting others up within the context of we will be handing over control at some stage. That's right. You know? that's right. So that's the big context. That's what gives us the, the drive, having the humble confidence, you know, knowing the answer is great for our ego, not knowing the answer, our ego can take a hit. But if we lead with humble confidence, where we're very clear on what we stand for, we're in service of, of others in the classroom context, it would be in service of our, our students. Um, and what they could become in the future. You know, when we're locked onto that, when we are mm -hmm. guided by our stands, then it will give us the confidence. But I hand up and say, look, I don't know the answer, but let me tell you why we've got to figure it out, why it's important. And that's a very different way of leading. But the reason it's such a powerful way of leading is because we're no longer the constriction of the pipe because progress does not rely on us knowing the answer. Mm. Yeah, and I've been, um, I was really interested in the way that with teachers, with rooms full of kids and teaching the same grade or whatever, same age children over and over, you can become very efficient and very, you know, focused on where you're trying to get the student or whatever and recognize, very easy to recognize the correct answers as you said and reward children for having the correct answers but I, I think some of the most interesting problems of practice or or opportunities for teaching come when we ask kids well why would you why do you why did you think that when they say something that's not expected or is maybe even wrong Absolutely. but understanding the how did they get there and where are they and how are they understanding this question is so much more rich than just knowing whether it they is. got the I, right answer. I, I yeah, I, I think there is a huge opportunity in teaching here to um, figure out a way in the classroom of how to give children the opportunity to become comfortable leading when they don't know the answer. You know, to be the one right. up front who instead is practicing the skills because leading when you don't know the answer well the keys to it is first of all being resolute where you're going what's you know the big yes. picture um but also rather than a focus on knowing the answer having a focus instead on the important questions to ask right and i, I think there's a huge opportunity in our school system wherever we are in the world mm -hmm. to um, enable students to become confident asking the important questions rather than solely be focused on finding or knowing the answers because when they enter the the big wide world uh, if they are adept at, at asking those important questions then the people they work with uh, the teams of which they're a part will accelerate their progress so much more Mm -hmm. than if uh, they think all the time, I've got to know the answer, I've got to know the answer, or uh, I feel stupid if I don't know the answer. Mm -hmm. you know? And I, I think that's the opportunity in, in schools. I, I really do. I agree. I bet many of our listeners do as well. Uh, Peter, I can't believe I could talk to you about this book all day, but I'm going to ask you one more question about the content. We haven't really talked about the bucket of belonging, so I'm going to ask you one question about belonging, and then... A couple of questions about your hopes and dreams for the book and we'll call it an hour but um, uh, the third section of your book is about belonging and um, 
I guess I could ask you lots of questions or a lot of big ideas in this section, but maybe you could just say what your understanding of belonging is. What is belonging? How is it created? And why is it important? And I know that those are huge questions, so you can give us a short answer and I can say, you should read the book to find out more. <laughs> well, how about a story to illustrate it? Always a story is great. So this one is actually in the book. Um, when our kids were growing up, when they were young, we lived in a, a relatively small community. It was quite safe. The, the roads were, were cul-de-sacs, you know, and uh, there wasn't much traffic. And our kids would play with our neighbors' kids out on the street. And um, that was fine. They were safe. And we would keep an eye open for any any dangers, you know. So if a car came along or a stranger walking around, which would be very unusual, we'd go out. And here's the thing. We would take care of our own kids because as parents, we have accountability. Here's another distinction. Mm -hmm. We have accountability for our children. But we chose to take responsibility for our mm -hmm. neighbors' kids' safety too. Yeah. Uh, and why was that? It was because we felt a sense of belonging mm. to our community. Mm -hmm. And this goes to the heart of the power of belonging. When we sense that, that we belong, we choose to step up. We choose to do more than we might otherwise. We choose to take responsibility to go a step further rather than being limited by what we're formally accountable for. Mm -hmm. So this is why belonging has such a dramatic effect. It what is what builds communities um, of, of, of families uh, on a, an estate somewhere. It's what builds great teams and organization. And it what it's what builds uh, a great atmosphere in a classroom as well. Exactly. You know? yeah. When uh, students feel they belong, that they have a place, that they have something that they can contribute. They will more likely take a step up to take that risk to contribute more, even when they don't get the answer right, right. because they feel that well maybe they've they've helped someone else by by speaking up you know right uh, so that's the reason that belonging is is so important. We all seek it. We all <sighs> savor it, and as leaders, whether we're leading uh, a class of students whether we're leading as parents or whether we're leading as part of our community. Mm -hmm. uh, our role is to nurture that sense of belonging because the potential it unlocks is, is endless. Mm. I think that's a great place for us to end. Um, I, I always ask authors two more questions. So one is, um, most authors I know at some point in the writing process imagine a reader that might be a little bit like standing on the top of the mountain for the books that they send out in the world. Who do you hope will read Leading from the Jump Seat? This is one of the most challenging questions, I think. <laughs> As, uh, I, I think it's common practice for writers to create an avatar. You know, who, who's your reader? Right. Describe them. Uh, and that was a challenge because I truly believe that there's, there's material in this book that can help anyone. 
you know, and that's the reason I created those four levels we talked right. about earlier of learning to fly, flying, teaching others to fly and leaning from the jump seat. So uh, I, I feel that this book is helpful for people who are perhaps just figuring out what's important to them in life. So maybe they're finishing high school and going on to, to college, university. Um, it could be people who are flying. So teachers who are, uh, you know, perhaps two or three years into their career mm -hmm. um, and uh, are really enjoying it or want to find a little bit more direction. It could be um, head teachers who are um, teaching others to fly, right. you know, helping their cadre of, of teachers really serve the students they teach and get better every day. Or it could be governors of schools or administrators who've um, perhaps taken a step back from the frontline teaching, but are there, well, leading from the jump seat, helping those in their care feel that they have their backs, feel that they belong and uh, nurturing that sense of belonging. So it all takes just a little bit of reflection and looking at those, consider this parts of each chapter, mm -hmm. but I, I think there's something there for everyone, whether you're a teacher or a parent or leading any team. <laughs> uh, Peter, that's a great last question. Actually, I'm gonna stop there um, because I have to say, I'm gonna say again, I was a little skeptical that it, the book would be for anyone. Um, but I was curious, and now I completely agree with you. I think there's a lot here for anyone, and I'm looking forward to sharing this book with, um, well, I told you I already shared it with my husband over dinner, I'm planning to share it with my children, and I look forward to sharing it with the National Writing Project Network, too. So thank, thank you. you for being on NWP Radio tonight. It's been an absolute delight and pleasure speaking with you, Tanya. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I'm just going to remind listeners the title of the book is Leading from the Jump Seat. It's available from Why Not Press. And for your help, I already checked and it is available at bookshop.org. So you can get online and order it today. Thank you, Peter. You're most welcome. Thank you. You're listening to NWP Radio, a production of the National Writing Project. NWP. Love you, love you, love you.